The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. A triumph of willpower over the orgasm. At a rally of the Anti-Sex League in Victory Square tonight, held to celebrate a 50% decrease in civil marriages, over 10,000 party women took a vow of celibacy and pledged themselves as vessels for the... I just want to finish by saying a few words about the impact of this imminent neurological breakthrough. When the orgasm has been finally eradicated, the last remaining obstacle to the psychological acceptance of the principles of Ingsoc, uh, as applied to Artsem, will be overcome. In other words, the unorthodox tendencies towards own life, which constantly threaten the natural erosion of the family unit, will no longer have the biological support of the organism. As we all know, the biological and social stimulation of the family leads to private reflection outside party needs and to the establishment of unorthodox loyalties which can only lead to thought crime. But the introduction of ARTSEM combined with the neutralization of the orgasm will effectively render obsolete the family until it becomes impossible to conceptualize. Thank you. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, August 16th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our opener today comes from the 1984 movie, 1984, which in turn originated from the book of the same name written by George Orwell in 1948. And as we just heard, his prediction of an anti-sex league in the future world of 1984 turned out to be just right. In fact, various anti-sex leaguers are still with us, and their philosophies form the basis of what I shall henceforth call the sex derangement syndrome. And I'll explain that right after reminding you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right social media links, and of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Now, when I first heard the term Trump derangement syndrome, I remember being unusually impressed with how apt an expression it was. It perfectly described the condition of those expressing an unprecedented and utterly unjustifiable hatred of Donald Trump. We never saw anything like this regarding the previous president. From the first day of his election, I recall concluding on this very show that former President Barack Obama would be totally anti-American and likely be one of America's worst presidents, and I call that just right too. But I never would have spent any persistent time and effort at expressing the kind of hatred and outright intolerance towards Obama that others are today hurling in Trump's direction. And that is truly deranged. 
and it's part of a larger syndrome. A syndrome is a group of symptoms that consistently occur together or a condition characterized by a set of associated symptoms, or an aggregate or set of concurrent symptoms indicating the presence and nature of a disease. While the word derangement means to unbalance the reason of, to render insane, disturbing the order of things. Now, of course, derangement also suggests a rearrangement of sorts, but a rearrangement that is incorrect. Cause and effect may be reversed. Cause and effect might not even be recognized or acknowledged. And that principle certainly holds true when I hear the left's criticisms about Donald Trump or the arguments that uh, have been used to, say, fight climate change, something we discussed just a few weeks ago. And at that time, I suggested that the belief that tax trading schemes can affect the planetary climate is practically the definition of irrationality. It's deranged thinking. And again, the term climate derangement syndrome perfectly fit that phenomenon. So today we'll be talking about what I shall now call the sex derangement syndrome, and which is an integral part of all the other syndromes that we are witnessing. And it too is a trait of the left. I'd like to take a moment to thank Gad Sad, who not only provided my primary inspiration for today's show, but from whom we'll also hear a bit later as our show progresses. This past May, Robert and I interviewed Gad about his concept of idea pathogens, viruses of the mind, a concept that I'm finding to be as useful as the idea of the derangement syndrome and which seems not to present any inconsistencies or contradictions when used together. So from children's toy preferences to adult pornography preferences, we'll be hearing more from Gad shortly on some truly Orwellian developments on the sexual front. You know, I often wonder if George Orwell ever envisaged his name being used to describe frightening and alarming conditions that are, well, Orwellian. <laughs> well, some of the newspeak actually being spoken today is chillingly no different than that spoken in Orwell's vision. So I thought I would just kick off the show today with this item from the National Post's Barbara Kay on August 3rd of this year. Gender study was truly for the dogs, reads the headline. Quote, Last year, a certain Helen Wilson, claiming to hold a doctorate in feminist studies, submitted a paper titled Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performantivity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon, to the Journal of Feminist Geography. <laughs> really? Feminist geography? Was that meant as a joke? Because she never, never mentions that again in the article. Is there is such a thing? I mean, that alone sounds deranged. But she continues, Turned out there was no evidence for Wilson's PhD claim, but her accreditation shouldn't have been the issue. Why would any credible academic journal accept a paper hypothesizing dog parks are microcosms where hegemonic masculinist norms governing queering behavior and compulsory heterosexuality can be observed in a cross-species environment? The statement, of course, is utter BS, she writes, because... See, they're not humans, they're dogs. <laughs> that an allegedly educated human being can sit in a dog park for a thousand hours by Wilson's account, observing canine interaction, and process it strictly through the lens of feminist dogma, <laughs> illuminates what the humanities are churning out. 
Minds that are completely untethered from science, not to mention common sense, lacking the merest smidgen of critical thinking skills. End quote. Now, the rest of Kay's article is about a book that was actually written about dogs in 2009, The 100 Silliest Things People Say About Dogs, by Alexandra Semyonova, a book that Kay highly recommends if you want to understand dog behavior, because gender studies will not help you, she says. By the way, among the dog myths she listed were the ideas that dogs are a kind of tame wolf, that they are pack animals, that owners must demonstrate alpha dog behavior or their dogs will not respect them and other mantras that people believe, even when consistent evidence fails to materialize. So she's saying all those things are not true about dogs because there's no evidence to suggest that it is. And this mention of consistent evidence failing to materialize sounds like something that would qualify for a concept that we'll be learning about later a nomological network of cumulative evidence. Remember that one. But most interestingly, the rest of her review of the dog book is about how dogs establish hierarchies of what its author describes as self-organizing systems, SOS. The goal is to spread the available energy around evenly without collision, i.e. serious fighting in the dog's case, until the system achieves stability. Quote, every time more than two dogs share a physical space, they immediately constitute a SOS seeking its equilibrium. They all work towards maximal well-being and safety. No recourse to authority is required. End quote. Well, that all sounds very much like the hierarchical structure that forms around all life on the planet, as described by Jordan Peterson in many of his lectures, and as we discussed on our own show just a couple weeks ago. It is a natural life structure as is heterosexuality, which is unfortunately viewed by feminists as a form of patriarchy and as being compulsory. I don't know about you, but the idea of compulsory heterosexuality is particularly noteworthy, since it suggests that only heterosexuality is compulsory, while all the other sexual options, gender preferences and choices, are voluntary in some unimaginable, unstated way. It is, of course, an anti-concept, another manipulative term that serves to reveal what is really on the minds of those using it, and that's heterosexuality. It's on their minds because it is the enemy, according to feminists. It represents patriarchy and a whole host of other imagined ills that only demonstrate how truly deranged feminism has become. Don't take my word for it. Up next is Gad Sad, evolutionary behavioral scientist at the John Molson School of Business, Concordia University, speaking to an audience under the auspices of the Society of Academic Freedom and Scholarship at Western University this past May. So I argue that there are two great threats to humanity. Well, not I argue, that's reality. There are, of course, biological pathogens that come in all sorts of manners. Sometimes they're bacterium. Sometimes they're viruses, sometimes they're parasites, and they cause more death throughout human history than your fear of bears and sharks and so on, right? Uh, but I argue that there's another set, another class of viruses. These are idea pathogens. These are pathogens of the human mind, pathogens of the human spirit that regrettably could potentially be as dangerous as biological pathogens. And to kind of further push this notion. So as an evolutionary psychologist, of course, I often look at 
analogies and homologies in the animal kingdom. And so here are some parasitic realities uh, in nature, and then I'll link it to some of the things that interest the group here. So the spider wasp is a much smaller organism than the uh, spider on which it eventually, it eventually stings it, rendering it hapless, dragging it to the burrow, where it then lays its eggs, and then its offsprings eat it in vivo. Now, how is that related to anything that we're interested in here? Political correctness is the spider wasp. It stings us and then haplessly leads us toward the abyss of infinite darkness. Toxoplasma gondii is a parasite that afflicts mice. And when they're afflicted with that parasite, they lose their innate fear of cats. <laughs> Not a good, it's a maladaptive reality. <laughs> P. tenuis is a brainworm that afflicts ungulates. So for example, the moose. And when that moose is inflicted or afflicted with that uh, parasite, it can do what's called circling behavior. So it just literally goes around in a circle, unable to extricate itself from this behavior. So even as the looming predators are approaching, it can't extricate itself. So now, how do we take some of these uh, notions and apply them to the realities we're facing? So they are idea pathogens. Radical feminism, postmodernism, social constructivism, cultural and moral relativism, political correctness, echo chambers void of intellectual diversity, the culture of perpetual offense and victimhood, identity politics coupled with, with uh, progressive self-flagellation. Each of these are really, really dangerous idea pathogens. And uh, my next book, tentatively right now, the title is The Parasitic Mind, where I actually sort of lay out where, which ecosystem do these pathogens arise from, universities, uh, and then how do we try to inoculate ourselves or free ourselves from some of these idea pathogens. And so I, I can break up a lot of these idea pathogens into three categories. In some cases, we have idea pathogens that attack basic scientific truths. There is no such thing as two phenotypes and homo sapiens. There is no such thing as biological sex. That's a fundamental attack on a reality that is obvious to the average dull two-year-old. But apparently, you're a Nazi bigot if you think that biology matters. Then there are attacks on the epistemology for seeking truth. right? So uh, there, there are endless ways of knowing. And your way of knowing, called the scientific method, should not be a privileged way. Postmodernism says you know, no objective truths. So in this case, it's not a specific truth that you're attacking, but you're attacking the epistemology of how to go about approaching getting to truth. And then thirdly, there's a class of pathogens that attacks the idea of what it is to navigate through a meritocracy. Uh, the gentleman in question here, you see, this is me uh, speaking in front of the Canadian Senate regarding Bill C-16. It was briefly mentioned, I think, earlier today. Bill C-16, nobody questions the fact, or at least if you truly are a classically liberal person, uh, of course I support the right of everybody to live free of hate and bigotry and to have all of the rights that are afforded to all of us. But I was, in my case, speaking as an evolutionary psychologist in terms of whether, when is it going to be the case that someone could say, hey, you're talking about 
evolved sex differences in your course, which is sort of the foundational mechanism. Natural and sexual selection are the two mechanisms, the evolutionary mechanisms that explain much of who we are. Well, wouldn't that be transphobic systemic violence in quotes, as Harvard said? Aren't I perpetuating, quote, fixed binaries and biological essentialism? So I was making a very sober scientific argument as to the potential dangers of Bill C-16, not questioning the fact that all people should live with full dignity and have all the rights that are afforded to all of us, right? Well, whatever, what happened to Lindsay Shepard is exactly what I was warning against. I mean, not in those exact ways that it happened to her. Well, this senator accused me of promulgating pro-genocide message. You can go and watch it. So the Lebanese Jew who escaped execution in Lebanon and came to Canada to live freely here and is now trying to protect people from all this nonsense was a pro-genocide supporter. This is the discourse in the Canadian Senate. You can go all watch it. Let me now give you some examples of attacks on scientific truths and attacks on the epistemology for generating truths. Some of you may have seen the story if you follow my work. This is a story that happened to me. This is in 2002, and in a second you'll understand what these two images mean. Uh, in 2002, one of my doctoral students had just uh, finished his PhD. He's actually now a Canada Research Chair Professor at Laurier. His name is Tripat Gill. And we were going out to celebrate his finishing his PhD. And he told me, oh, I'm bringing a, a, a date with me. And it was myself and my wife. And so we were going out to, and he said, but I just want to give you a heads up, uh, Professor. She's a, you know, she's a radical feminist and a postmodernist and a cultural anthropologist. So can we tone it down? <laughs> <laughs> to which I said, oh, mum's the word. Of course I wasn't going to keep quiet. We knew that that promise was going to be violated at some point. So during the evening, at one point, I said to the lady, so I hear you're a postmodernist. Yes. I said, well, do you mind if I offer you, so postmodern, uh, there are no objective truths. Uh, do you mind if I offer you, because as an evolutionary psychologist, I do work under the assumption that there are universal truths. Uh, there are things called human universals. Uh, so can I pitch some, what I consider to be universals, and then you could tell me how I'm wrong? Yeah, go ahead. I said, okay, well, within Homo sapiens, only women bear children. So I, I, I prophesied, uh, I was being prophetic about the whole Bill C-16 way before it happened. I said, only women can bear children. Is that, is that a universal? She looked at me with utter disgust, with contempt. She huffed and puffed. She rolled her eyes. I said, absolutely not. Said, no, it's not only women that bear children. She goes, no, there is a, tri a Japanese tribe off some island where within the spiritual realm, within their spiritual doctrines, it is men who bear children. By you restricting the conversation to the biological materialist realm, that's how you keep us barefoot and pregnant. After I recovered from my mini stroke, <laughs> I then asked, okay, well, maybe it's too controversial for me to argue that 
women bear children. That's, that seems to be too taboo. Let's take a, a slightly more innocuous example. Is it true since time immemorial that sailors have presumed that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west? Is that, is that true? Here she used something called deconstructionism. She said, what do you mean? I don't play labels. What do you mean by east and west? What do you mean by sun? That which you call sun, I call, and now you'll understand, I call dancing hyena. And I said, but fine. So the dancing hyena rises in the east and sets in the west. <laughs> if I don't put dancing hyena lotion on my skin, I might get a dancing hyena burn. <laughs> she said, no, 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 I don't play those games. Now that's not, she wasn't an anomaly. She wasn't an outlier. She is what is being taught to all your kids with your hard-earned money. Not only are you losing all the money, you are infecting those children or young adults uh, with idiotic, anti-science, anti-reason, anti-logic nonsense. So there's a real cost to allowing these viruses to proliferate. That nearly unbelievable 2002 story we just heard from Gad Sad is right out of a Jerry Seinfeld skit, if nothing else. I have a few of my own thoughts on Gad's experience, strictly based, of course, on his own comments and relation of the story that we just heard. The woman who Gad was talking about was clearly a complete train wreck, infected by what Gad would describe as an idea pathogen. She's suffering what from what I would describe as sex derangement syndrome. It's so severe that she can't even accept that, quote, only women bear children. You know, the woman that Gad described, such as she was, completely disengaged from reality in that given conversation, undermining her own arguments as she was making them. She doesn't play labels, quote-unquote, but nevertheless she uses them. That's part of her epistemological game. The labels have to be her subjective labels, not the labels that billions of people in the world over have agreed upon should be the labels for a given concept. That's the whole idea of language in the first place, that we all agree on what word symbolizes what concept. Changing a label from sun to dancing hyena changes nothing other than to make it clear that the person saying it is the dancing hyena. Why not call her that? How's that any less valid than her own reasoning? You see the, you see the glaring contradictions? She objects to restricting the conversation to the biological, materialistic realm, and then insists on restricting the conversation to some obscure Japanese spiritual realm. She's doing the same thing, only a lot worse. She's basically announcing that the world revolves around her, and nothing else but her matters. It's, it's, all, it's all from subjective thinking, which, in the context of today's theme, is caused by this idea pathogen that Gad talks about. All she's doing is shifting the conversation from an objective one that seeks to discover reality through reason to a subjective one, promoting her fantasy through irrationality, which are the non-values that she represents to the core, and which largely define what we call the left. That's where all these poisonous idea pathogens come from.
Now, given the context of biological birth, it is perfectly proper and necessary to restrict the language to the biological materialistic realm. I mean, that's what all language does. It restricts the discussion to the concepts being discussed so that they can be discussed. Similarly, her insistence on the use of a term like dancing hyena restricts the conversation to one of irrationality in order to disable the rational and place it on the same mindless and evil footing as the dancing hyena so that nothing can be discussed, right? War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. A triumph of willpower over the orgasm. You know, reading those words out of a fiction novel like 1984 grants a certain license to the outrageous contradictions in definition. I mean, if war is peace, why are there still two words to describe the supposedly same concept? I mean, sci-fi and fantasy is one thing. Surely such contradictions cannot exist in reality, can they? <laughs> but it's worse in reality. You'll recall... The German Nazi camps had similar contradictions on their signs. Arbeit macht frei is a German phrase meaning work sets you free. Yet the slogan is known for appearing on the entrance of Auschwitz and other Nazi prison and slave labor camps. It just might as well have read, freedom is slavery. Literally. That's how the left thinks and must operate. In a complete environment of irrationality from which its ideologies emanate. Of course, from the Nazi point of view, the real meaning of the term was your work sets us free, or our freedom is your slavery, which pretty much describes the fundamental premise of all collectivist thinking. So why is it so important for postmodernists like this woman to insist that heterosexuality is patriarchal and forced? What's with the anti-sex league philosophy and approach? Why are they doing that? I mean, the idea pathogen that's trying to deny that biology matters is exactly the one made by both Gad's dinner guest and the voice in our 1984 opener today. Both were making the argument of the anti-sex league, where to prevent or deny sex, the mind had to be deprived of, quote, the biological support of the organism, end quote. In other words, eliminate the physical as being part of humanity's true nature and identity. The left is always trying to change the nature of humanity, rather than finding a philosophy that suits the nature of human beings. And means and ends remain consistent, and they're always the same. Slavery is the means, slavery is the end, if not death itself. And as Dr. Sad says, it makes no difference whether the pathogen that kills you is physical or an idea. Now, while I fully believe the story as it was related by Gad, I don't for a minute believe that the woman in question actually believes that, that men have babies. I mean, if she actually does, then her problem is much bigger than being a leftist, <laughs> even if those views are consistent with one another. But if she isn't crazy then what is she? What could possibly motivate a person to consciously express such irrational ideas? Could it be that she just wanted to piss off Gad Sad? <laughs> you know, I think I'd feel a little bit better if I knew that was the case. But you know what? I think people like her actually do exist and do think like that. I run into them all the time.
This is an attack on the epistemology of seeking the truth, because you're dealing with language, playing word games, you know? The words we use to describe reality are not arbitrary, nor are they changeable at whim. That's an epistemological principle. Conceptually, words are no different than numbers. After all, if the number seven meant a quantity of seven to me, but a quantity of two billion to you and 4.7 to Bill over there, it wouldn't even be possible to establish that one and one is two, nor could we ever have a mathematical conversation. All of math and science would collapse in an instant if such a contradiction were accepted. So just consider the damage done when people choose to do the same thing to language, to the words and concepts that we use. Entire disciplines collapse, which is exactly what has happened to the humanities, and which is spreading to the rest, from geography to math, a subject we'll no doubt revisit on a future date. But I'm quite convinced that the so-called radical feminists that they actually hate women, specifically women who embrace their feminine identity, not feminist identity. And one of the constantly cited, quote, weapons of patriarchy has been high heel shoes, believe it or not. I recall recently listening to a panel of leftist feminist types having a conversation on one of our local AM radio stations complaining about the hardships imposed on women by wearing high heel shoes. And after listening to all of the problems and complaints associated with high heels, every one of them confessed to buying high heels and planning to do so again in the future. Think about that. Here again, I shall defer to Gad Sad, this time from his 2011 book, The Consuming Instinct, What Juicy Burgers, Ferraris, Pornography, and Gift-Giving Reveal About Human Nature. And this is his chapter on high heels. And I quote, men collect cars, women collect shoes. One of the products most bought by compulsive buyers, 90% of whom are women, are shoes. Specifically shoes that beautify the silhouette, as is the case with stilettos. The alluring Marilyn Monroe, known for her beguiling beauty and sensuality, apparently once stated, quote, I don't know who invented the high heel, but all men owe a lot to him, end quote. Pornographic actresses, strippers, and female bikini contests almost always wear stilettos as a means of flaunting their sexuality. In Chapter 2 of her book, Stripping, Sex, and Popular Culture, Catherine M. Roach reports on the use of high heels as part of the exotic dancer's trade. Even though strippers complain of the physical pain and possible injuries that can occur when wearing high heels, the women are quick to point out their importance. When asked if she might prefer to wear shoes with smaller heels, one stripper replied, No, I don't think so, because I think they're sexy. When another stripper was asked whether she missed working as a stripper, she retorted, I miss the shoes. Then she added, If bars allow less than three inches, they're stupid. She further explained how high heels not only improve the appearance of a woman's body, but they also alter the way that she sways in a manner that is visually alluring to men. To some, this whole discussion is offensive, as it objectifies women as creatures of sexual enticement. Detractors of high heels argue that this cruel fashion accoutrement is yet another means by which men abuse women. Women wear high heels because they feel sexy and desirable when doing so. 
and it happens to arouse men's evolved visual preferences as well. The reality is that both sexes doggedly seek to impress one another in the mating arena even when such efforts can be self-injurious. Men assume great physical risks as a means of signaling their value as a mate to women. Be it in the extreme sports in which they participate, the occupational hazards they're willing to assume, or the intrasexual violence in which they partake. No one proclaims that there is a conspiracy that imposes these dangerous behaviors on men as a means to get them killed. The innate need to be attractive on the mating market is a key drive of the human experiences. The wearing of high heels is but one such strategy out of an endless repertoire of beautification rituals. End quote. So that's Gad Sad on the issue of high heels from his book, The Consuming Instinct. Femalist revolution, Nigel. I mean, no more women in ugly shoes telling us we're just the same as men. Because, I mean, we're not. We're different. And we should enjoy it. I mean, I love my breasts. But we're also not different either, which is also very cool. I mean, women are just as mean and horny and power-hungry as men are. Maybe even more. So toy preferences is sort of one of the classic examples of so-called social constructivism. The idea is that little boys are taught to play aggressively with blue trucks. Little girls are taught to play in a nurturing manner with pink dolls. And that starts a cascade of gender-specific socialization. right? And a truly progressive person would have their son play with dolls and would have uh, their daughter play with guns, right? But if you're a toy company, you don't care about ideological dogma. You care about selling things. And so that's why practitioners typically never give me grief for my theories, because they don't care about ideological dogma. They care about how do you describe reality as it really exists, right? This is called a nomological network of cumulative evidence. If I want to make an argument that something is an adaptation, Something is due to a biological cause. So for example here, are toy preferences biological based or are they completely social constructions? Okay. So then I would think, what would be the data that I would have to show you to prove to you in an unassailable manner that there is a biological basis to toy preferences? And that epistemological process is what I call nomological networks of cumulative evidence. Charles Darwin himself had used nomological networks, although he didn't call it that in his days, when he was collecting all of the data for origin of species over a 20 plus year period, what was he effectively doing? He was methodically, judiciously collecting data from endless different sources, which when you put it all together, it became impossible to dispute his theory. And if 150 years later, a lot of very motivated people have tried to dispute it, and it still stands. And so let me show you how we could apply it in the current context. I could take children who are in the pre-socialization stage, meaning that they don't yet have the cognitive development to be socialized. So by definition, I'm ruling out that possibility. And I could show that they exhibit 
sex-specific preferences, that boys will reach out to the truck or stare at the truck more and vice versa for girls. So already, that first box is casting doubt on the idea that it's all due to social construction. But let's see if I can give you a few more that really build sort of the tsunami of evidence against that position. This is called comparative psychology. I could look to other animals. So I could take rhesus monkeys. I could take vervet monkeys. I could take chimpanzees. And I could show that the infants within those species exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences. Now, are they also being under the influence of patriarchal sexism? Or might there be some homology across the behaviors? Now, if that's not enough, let me do one more. But if, if we did all of them, believe me, even the one who is least convinced would be convinced by the end of this lecture. You could take kids who suffer from something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is an endocrinological disorder. If little girls suffer from it, they become masculinized. They become masculinized in their morphology and in their behavior. Well, you take little girls who suffer from this endocrinological disorder and you study their toy preferences, what do you think happens to their toy preferences? They become masculinized. So if I stop the conversation right there, I, I'm not going to do all of them, already that is casting huge doubt on your idea that it's all due to the vagaries of the evil patriarchy. I didn't have to get into histrionics. I had to just simply be very judicious and think about what are the wide variety of data that I could offer you to convince you that you're peddling bullshit, right? And, and so all of us in this room should certainly benefit from understanding that epistemology. If you want to know if a particular religion is peaceful or not, build a nomological network. There is a wide range of data that you could collect, that's already been collected for you, that will unequivocally answer the question of whether Islam is peaceful or not, whether Jainism is peaceful or not. You don't have to guess. You don't have to listen to your friend. You could, you could build that data. So one of the projects that I'm hoping to start is a website where people can submit their nomological network for some phenomenon. It's not a literature review, right? A nomological network is not a literature review. It's, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking. It's what is all the data that I need to have that would render this argument unassailable? And so imagine now if you could go to this website and you want to look at uh, pornography, the evolutionary roots of pornography. Well, there is a nomological network that exists, and that's one of my next projects. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now, I can assure you that as a grandfather of two five-year-old twins, one a boy and one a girl, both brought up in the exact same environment and given the exact same opportunities and choices, including toys, I can attest, yes, biology counts. And while one anecdote does not a case make, when you consider Dr. Sad's nomological network of cumulative evidence that demonstrates the same thing, then denying reality entirely is your only option if you wish to pursue the goals of the left. And when it comes to the issue of pornography, Gad's reference to starting a website for a nomological network on that subject already may be well on its way given this following item, also from his book The Consuming Instinct, which pretty much says it all, and maybe even a bit more than most are accustomed to hearing about. Quote, 
In his 2010 paper aptly published in the Journal of Happiness Studies, Fabio Dorlando cited several sources regarding the import of the global pornography market. Its revenues totaled $97 billion in 2016. Apparently this constitutes larger revenues than those arising from the top three American professional sports leagues, as well as double those of the three major television networks. Think about that for a minute. He further mentions that 12% of global web pages that existed in 2006 were pornographic. In Julie M. Albright's 2008 study on internet sexual behaviors, she provided some powerful opening statistics about the importance of sex in the online world, including that 50% of trading conducted in Second Life, a popular virtual world where people interact with one another via personal avatars, dealt with sex. Not only is the commercial might of pornography a universal reality, but also the industry is an early adopter of many of the latest technologies in the ever-pressing quest to offer sexual material to the insatiable appetites of consuming masses. Despite the near-universal ubiquity of pornography, some view it as a patriarchal tool of oppression that serves no purpose other than to degrade women. Those who hold such a view are largely unaware of the evolutionary forces that have shaped male sexuality. Detractors of pornography have repeatedly argued that pornography has adverse effects on both individuals and the society at large. Two of the most common accusations levied against pornography are that they generate hostile feelings towards women, which in turn leads to an increased likelihood of committing sex crimes against women. Milton Diamond, director of the Pacific Center for Sex and Society, recently conducted an extensive review of the research that has sought to establish whether pornography actually yields the deleterious effects that it has been accused of. He concluded that the scientific evidence did not support the premise at the population level, and he went so far as to call it a myth. The reality is that the more tolerant a society is towards pornography, the better the plight of its women. Contrast Sweden, Canada, and the United States to strict Islamic societies. Incidentally, when users of pornography are directly asked about the effects of consuming hardcore porn on their lives, the net effects were overwhelmingly positive. This held true for both sexes. As a matter of fact, for both sexes, a positive correlation was found between the amount of hardcore pornography that was consumed and the extent of the beneficial effects. For example, sex life, attitudes towards sex, perceptions and attitudes towards individuals of the opposite sex, life in general, and overall. The global consumption of pornography has everything to do with innate sex differences in sexual fantasies and far less to do with patriarchal oppression. It is certainly the case that both men and women engage in sexual fantasies. It's part of what makes us human. However, the frequency with which we engage in such carnal daydreaming and the content of such fantasies are very telling about crucial differences between the two sexes when it comes to human mating. In a now classic study published over two decades ago, evolutionary behavioral scientists Bruce Ellis and Don Simmons explored this exact subject. Pornographic movies are rife with clues regarding the evolutionary origins of male sexuality. Take, for example, the so-called money shot, the climax, pun intended, of any scene in an adult movie. Specifically, it refers to the external ejaculation of the male actor on one or more body parts of the female actress. 
Interestingly, even though men will often state that one of their most frequent fantasies is to have sex with multiple women simultaneously, many pornographic movies are just as likely, if not more so, to show multiple men sharing one woman with the requisite multiple money shots. There are even subgenres of pornographic movies that take this polyandrous depiction to bewildering levels in the extreme gangbangs and bukkake films where m multiple men ejaculate on the face of one woman. Evolutionary psychologist Nicholas Pound provided a compelling explanation for this otherwise recurrent image in pornographic movies. He argued that males in numerous species become sexually aroused at the sight of another male mating with a female. In other words, the presence of other males serves as an excitatory visual cue. It would appear that the possibility of sperm competition between rival males gets men to rise, literally, to the occasion. Lest some readers might construe the money shot as a pernicious means of degrading women, it is important to note that male gay porn is equally laden with such depictions. In other words, the money shot is a visual stimulant for men regardless of their sexual orientation. The scientific study of pornography should not be marred in ideological debates, he concludes, in the same way that a juicy burger caters to our evolved penchant for fatty foods. The visual imagery inherent in hardcore pornography ultimately appeals to men's sexuality. This scientific fact holds true irrespective of the moral position that one might hold towards the pornographic industry. End quote. Well, you know, we've examined the issue of pornography ourselves on past episodes of Just Right and pretty much arrived at the same conclusions as Gad Saad and others who have studied sexual and violent depictions in film and video. In particular, I recall the Richard Nixon years in the U.S. when repeatedly the government launched various studies in an attempt to prove that pornography per se was harmful so that they could justify their censorship of it. Always, the studies came back with the same kinds of results as those reported by Dr. Sad. Now, here's an interesting perspective on sex scenes in movies and TV that I found. This is from the Post Media News Service of July 16th out of the buzz. Game of Thrones sex scenes defended, and the article reads, quote, Game of Thrones star Natalie Dormer has no problems with the sex on the show because it's always real. The British actress, who played Marjorie Tyrell in the fantasy drama for five seasons, insists intercourse on screen is okay as long as it isn't glamorized, quote-unquote, and she approves of the show's often violent sex scenes. Sex and romance is a huge part of human motivation, she says. So long as it's informing the story, then I don't see the problem. I think Thrones is quite good in that way. The violence is quite naturalistic. It's not hyper-stylized. It's not glamorized. And the sex is quite real and dirty as well. End quote. So violent sex is okay and natural, but glamorized sex is not okay? Glamour, as I understand it, has more to do with beauty than it does with activity or action per se. Perhaps that accounts for Natalie Dormer's objection to it, and also accounts for why the Miss America pageant, beginning this year, will no longer judge contestants on their appearance and consequently will be dropping the swimsuit competition. So speaking of being against glamorizing sexuality, from the June 6th, 18 Associated Press, 
by Wayne Perry, Pageant Drops Bikini Competition, says the headline. Atlantic City, New Jersey, the Miss America pageant is dropping the swimsuit competition, saying it will no longer judge contestants on their appearance, but on what makes you, you. The pageant began nearly a hundred years ago as a bathing beauty contest to keep tourists coming to this seaside resort after Labor Day. But in recent decades, women's groups and others have complained that making contestants parade across the stage in bathing suits and high heels is outdated, sexist, and more than a little silly. The announcement came after a shakeup at the Miss America organization that resulted in the top three leadership positions being held by women. So in place of the swimsuit competition, contestants will participate in an interactive session with the judges where she will highlight her achievements and goals in life and how she will use her talents, passion, and ambition to perform the job of Miss America, the organization said in its statement. It's what comes out of their mouths that we care about. The changes will start with this year's broadcast on ABC on September 9th, end quote. There's so much wrong with this picture, it's hard to know where to begin. First, it's Miss America, for heaven's sakes. Let's be clear, there is a distinction between sexist and sexual. Wearing high heels is not sexist. Second, it's not women's groups and other unnamed people who are bitching about the beauty contests. It is the feminists and the anti-sex leaguers who are as anti-women as any group I can think of. In the same way that the labor movement's really anti-labor and anti-labor competition, feminists being on the left are opposed to competition in principle on any grounds. Everything to them is about an egalitarianism that eliminates any differences between people on which they can even compete. I see this action as disempowering women by depriving them of exploiting something they have that men don't, their sexuality. Or that a lot of other women may not have for that matter, and that could be the problem. I mean, if this is where you're going to go with beauty contests, then you might as well let men into the competition. I mean, it's what comes out of their mouths that we care about, right? Then let's have the pageants on radio and on podcasts then. Who needs the visual? if it's the verbiage that is to be judged beautiful. Johnny Joe Langford from Weehawk City, Alabama, was selected tonight as winner of the Miss Globe Beauty Pageant. Oh, they have to be kidding! Prizes won by the Raven-Haired Co-Ed include a round-the-world trip, plus... Oh, Raven-Haired Co-Ed? Well, that old bag's been entering contests since I was a kid. I could have beaten Johnny Joe Langford with my hair up in curls and my front poof blacked out. Ginger, we know you could have won. In fact, I'll propose a toast to Ginger, the most beautiful castaway in the whole wide world. Thank you, sir. Here's to Ginger. <laughs> you know, there's really more to beauty than perfection of face and figure. It also means breeding and poise and a kind of charm that comes with maturity. <laughs> How true. In my opinion, Mrs. Howell is the most beautiful creature in the world. Here's Mrs. Howell. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm afraid that I must inject another opinion here. In addition to beauty of face and figure, there is a lady here who also has sweetness and warmth. The lady I would pick is the most beautiful in the world, Marianne. Uh, here's to Marianne. Well, it would seem that there's a difference of opinion here, but I don't see any reason for argument. Let's say that Ginger's the most beautiful, uh, Mrs. Howell certainly is the most gracious, and last but not least, Marianne is the sweetest. <laughs> Yeah, let's say that. Let's not say it. I said that Mrs. Howell's the most beautiful creature in the world, and that is precisely what I meant. 
I beg your pardon. When I said that Marianne was the most beautiful in the world, that is exactly what I meant. I know, I know. Uh, let's have a beauty contest here on the island, and we could pick a, a Miss, Miss Castaway. Oh, a huh? beauty contest here? Well, that suits me fine. I think it's a marvelous idea. I agree, too. See you on the runway, girl. Okay. <laughs> oh, Gilligan, what a kind of piece of you of Uh, this year when I just talked about things like sex differences in my introductory psychology class, just the way uh, words spread and students who had been quite close to me in terms of good working relationships just suddenly stopped talking to me. It was real eye-opening to see how quickly it takes over and just how intense the effect is. How do we actually cure the people who have been infected? What can we actually do for them? I mean, I truly think that it's a question of teaching people how to better think. I mean, I know it sounds very grand, but it's, it's really amazing when you, when you challenge people. For example, if, you, if someone says, religion X is peaceful. Okay. I say, okay, well, how, how did you arrive at this? I challenge them, right? So it's kind of somewhat a Socratic process. It's uh, sort of a, a pointed epistemological approach. It's really teaching people to not be cognitively lazy. So most of us have a sort of an innate desire to be cognitive misers. But for some of these issues, you can't be a cognitive miser. You really have to ask people to get engaged in building these nomological networks. And I mean, I'm sure there are many strategies. I try to convince people by the overwhelming data that goes against their position. And usually, I'm able to, to be quite successful at it. Now, I've got one last item to add to our own nomological network of cumulative evidence. This, again, on the subject of beauty contests. And this is out of the London Free Press, originating with the Associated Press, written by Fabiolo Sanchez, Caracas, Venezuela. And the headline reads, Beauty Meets Beast. And this was on July 18th. Quote, At a small home with a leaking tin roof near Venezuela's capital, Joandris Coles proudly shows off two metal crowns with plastic gemstones and nine satin sashes won in local beauty pageants. The 16-year-old daughter of a butcher and a teacher is pinning her hopes for a future free of poverty on a single goal, rising through the world of pageants and becoming an international beauty queen. These sashes represent a huge accomplishment for me, says the skinny teen with dark brown eyes. While growing concern about sexism and the rise of the hashtag MeToo movement recently led the Miss America contest to drop swimsuit competitions and emphasize personal accomplishment, in Latin America, young women continue to flock to competitions where good looks are unabashedly championed above all else. After oil, beauty queens may be Venezuela's biggest export. Women from the South American nation have captured seven Miss Universe titles, and crown holders have gone on to notable careers as actresses, journalists, and even presidential candidates. At a recent casting for the Nuestra Beliza Venezuela contest, a pack of teens and 20-something women donned towering heels and coated their lips in glossy pink hues. Esther Panetta, an expert in women's studies, believes the continued popularity of beauty pageants in Venezuela is also an indication of how deeply sexist the country remains. Even as more women occupy seats in Congress and become business leaders throughout Latin America, a culture where looks are prized above intellect remains prevalent. 
Physical beauty is seen as a value, Pineda said, and it's given more importance than any other attribute, end quote. <laughs> well, duh. Hello out there in La La Land. Women's studies is clearly out of touch with anything to do with women. You know, it's the law of identity. It's a beauty contest, for God's sake, not a math competition. And of course, physical beauty is given more importance than any other attribute. <laughs> and it's given that importance by everyone who participates, particularly the contestants themselves. And talk about ignoring the evidence when at the same time she says, well, we're all sexist, but hey, women are occupying more seats in Congress and, and they're, they're getting ahead in business, so <laughs> what's the problem? Feminists, let's face it, they hate women for being women. And by that I mean heterosexual women. Their reasons are deeply rooted, both through a resentment of valuing beauty and through a hatred of anything competitive, from capitalism to beauty contests. There you have it. It's consistent. You know, Ayn Rand gave a definition of beauty that is universal to all things considered beautiful, and she described it thusly. Quote, beauty is a sense of harmony. Whether it's an image, a human face, a body, or a sunset, take the object which you call beautiful as a unit and ask yourself, what parts is it made up of? What are its constituent elements? And are they all harmonious? If they are, the result is beautiful. If there are contradictions and clashes, the result is marred or positively ugly. It isn't a matter of what you, for unknown reasons, decide to regard as beautiful. Because values are created by the observing consciousness. They are created by a standard based on reality. End quote. And what about beautiful ideas like freedom and capitalism? Well, for that kind of beauty, we'll have some more for you again next week. So join us again then, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. <coughs> I would like a world without strife, universal harmony, international goodwill, where the spirit of brotherhood enriches all of mankind forever. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mary Ann, for that sincere, unselfish, and unrehearsed speech. Please be seated. And now for contestant number two. Ginger, come on! Will you wait, please, till I introduce her? I already know Ginger. Come on, Ginger, go, go. All right, then. Hello, girl, Miss Ginger. Ginger. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you wonderful people for allowing me to be in this wonderful contest. It really is a wonderful experience, and it just makes a girl feel wonderful. Wonderful! Second of all, I'd like to thank all of you marvelous people for allowing me to be in this marvelous contest. It really is a marvelous experience and it makes a girl feel marvelous. Marvelous! Marvelous! <laughs> thank very, you very much, Ginger. I, I'm not finished yet. For allowing me to be in this terrific Ginger, contest. Your time it really is a terrific is experience. And thank you very much. Terrific! Terrific! <laughs> and now, for our third contestant, Mrs. Thurston Howell the third. Bravo! 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 I'm not going to make an unrehearsed speech or a speech that's wonderful, marvelous, 
terrific. I'm just going to say thank you, Judge, for being the son of an American mother. Bravo, bravo! More encore author! 